Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal podcasts, In Conversation. Hello and welcome to the April episode of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. We have two great guests for you today, Myra Barrett from Colorado State University to discuss imaging of the proximal metatarsis and Bonnie Barr from Rudin Riddle to talk about serum amyloid A in neonatal sepsis. Myra Barris is an Associate Professor of Equine Diagnostic Imaging at Colorado State University and is also co-owner of Inside Information Teleradiology Service. Myra will talk us through her recent publication in EVJ titled Radiographic Changes of the Proximal Third Metatarsal Bone Do Not Predict Presence or Severity of Proximal Suspensory Desmopathy in a Predominantly Quarter Horse Population. Myra, thank you very much for joining us today on the EVJ podcast. We're going to talk about your recent study in EVJ, and this study compares the radiographic and MRI findings of the proximal third metatarsal bone and the proximal suspensory ligament. So what type of pathologies are found in these regions, and why are they difficult to differentiate between Yeah, so this is, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to be here. Um, So this is a a challenging area because, as we know, and has been pretty well documented in the literature more recently, there is a lot of confounding overlap between the tarsus and the proximal metatarsus. And we can have osseous abnormalities associated with the um, third metatarsal bone, like bone lysis, resorption, proliferation, sclerosis, bone marrow lesions. We can have suspensory ligament changes. We can have changes in the soft tissues around the suspensory ligament, like the plantar fascia. And then we can have degenerative changes within the tarsus. Um, and those all can, you know, be lameness localized to a similar area. So we can have a lot of a lot of abnormalities that occur in this area, and they don't necessarily occur in isolation, right? We can have changes both associated with the bone and the ligament. We can have changes in the ligament and the tarsus. You know, so there's a lot of overlap in this area, which makes it a particularly challenging area from a diagnostic standpoint. So, so what are these common diagnostic imaging findings related to pathology in these areas? And which are the most sensitive imaging modalities to diagnose these changes? Yeah. So, I mean, oftentimes we'll start, right, if a horse has lameness localized to the proximal metatarsal region, often we'll start with an ultrasound of that area and and or radiographs. And, you know, radiographs can certainly show us some osseous changes, which was the point of this paper, including um, changes in the bone density at the um, proximal metatarsus. Um, and then ultrasound can show us also the osseous changes of the plantar cortex of the third metatarsal bone right on that surface really nicely. Actually, you can see osseous changes on our ultrasound, particularly a non-weight bearing assessment and changes in the ligament. But honestly, the best overall sort of gold standard, in my opinion, um, is an MRI and optimally, if when possible, a high field um, MRI, because the thing that that tells us is it gives us a lot more detail about uh, ligamentous change, the soft tissues around that area, um, concurrent tarsal pathology, bone sclerosis, which we'll see when in, going into the endosteum. So when we see you know, increased bone density, say on our radiographs, 
we can't necessarily tell if that's proliferative bone extending from the plantar cortex or if that's sclerotic bone extending in into the endosteum, right? So we can see that there's bone change, but we can't necessarily tell directionality. And that is something else that we're going to appreciate on our MRI. And then, of course, the other thing that MRI really brings to the table is bone marrow lesion, so abnormal fluid signal within the bone, which we can see as part of enthesopathy of the suspensory ligament on our MRIs. And we can also sometimes see bone marrow lesions within the tarsus that can also be something that blocks to that area. And then I would be remiss just to um, not mention CT because we have seen an explosion in CT options. And so there's now, I think, you know, a lot to be learned from what we can what we can get out of CT of this area. But for the purpose of today, I'm really going to sort of focus on the comparison to MRI as the gold standard, which is what we did in the paper as well. There have been previous studies looking into um, comparative imaging findings in this region. Mm-hmm. So what did these previous studies find? Well, I think that um, what we have found and what we found in our previous paper where we just looked at um, MRIs of this area and of comparison to um, older sound, there is definitely some variation in the, the literature in terms of how well, say, um, ultrasound assessment of um, ligamentous pathology compares to MRI with some some studies showing a little bit better correlation than others. Um, But overall, it's been fairly well recognized that we do not have, like, that we absolutely do not see the complete entirety of lesions on MRI, sorry, on radiographs and ultrasound that we see on MRI. So what were the aims and objectives of your study? So the goal of this study was to take what we think is a very common use of radiographs and decide whether the way we've been using those radiographs is appropriate or not. So when we think about it, a lot of times, let's say just take like a pre-purchase scenario. Um, we'll, you know, we do tarsal radiographs and we'll see bone change at the origin of the um, suspensory ligament region on MT3. And then we have to decide how much we're going to get worried about that. And we could also take that and supply that same scenario to say like a lameness exam. Say we, we take tar- tarsal radiographs and we um, see some evidence of sclerosis or bone lucency at the origin of the suspensory ligament region on MT3. And we want to then decide what, what, um, what can we glean from that, right? And so the question was, and what I think a lot of people have historically done is look at that, they see bone change, and then they're, they say, they extrapolate to that to say their suspensory ligament desmopathy. And we didn't know if that was actually something you could do. Is that a reliable thing to do or not? And so what we wanted to do is take this very easily accessible, common um, process of, of radiographs of the third metatarsal bone, and then compare that to MRI as the gold standard. So we say, okay, if if we so we grade the <coughs> tarsal or the radiographs, and then we see how that compares to the findings on the MRI to tell us how reliably we can actually extrapolate the radiographic changes to the other pathology that we could be occurring in this area. So what type of study design did you use? And can you tell us a little bit about the population of horses you recruited into the study? Yeah, so we this was a retrospective study, um, and they were based on sort of the 
the imaging center where we obtained this, these um, MRIs, they um, it's, it's in Texas. And so they were mostly quarter horses and mostly Western performance horses. We did have um, two warm bloods, but otherwise the majority were, were quarter horses. And um, so we had, so we took the, we took it, we did a medical record search and we found about 350 hind limbs that had had MRIs of the proximal metatarsus and tarsus. And then we had to go through and try to get the, a radiographic study. So the, the thing that sort of was a challenge with this is we had easy access to the MRIs um, through the cooperation of this imaging center, but then most of the horses had had radiographs done prior to referral for MRI. So then we had to, our, we, I should really give Dr. Hinkle, who is the first author on this paper, the credit, she did the, this heavy legwork on this, contacting the various clinics where these horses had come from and trying to acquire the radiographic study. And so we wanted the radiographic study to be within um, a relatively close time frame to the to the MRI, right? We didn't want a big time gap. So that was an inclusion criteria and it had to be a full study. And it, of course it had to be of good quality. And so that was the that was what we needed in order to include the horses. So that was the the study design. And so by in the end, with all of those inclusions, we were able to get 35 um, limbs on 35 horses. And what type of imaging protocols did you follow? So the, um, like I said, we were not able to standardize the radiographs, right? Because those were all, it's a retrospective study. They came from various clinics. So basically that was just a, um, we just required a four standard radiographic views within one month. And again, we couldn't say, you know, you had to have this KVP or this MA or this exact angle. We weren't able to do that. And then the MRI, again, because it was retrospective, we didn't set the um, protocol. But the nice thing is there was a there was a sort of standardized protocol. And we and, and sometimes at this clinic, they did have um, they, they, you know, they would maybe be scanning multiple legs. Right. And so they were kind of trying to. Um, get the study done relatively quickly without the horses being, you know, under general anesthesia for a really long time. So sometimes they, you know, ran a limited protocol, but we did require at minimum a transverse PD, a stir, um, and a, um, gradient echo image, uh, sorry, like a T1 gradient echo, um, to assess the images. Was that all high field? MRI it's all then? high field. It was all done under a state, one single scanner. Um, and all, it was a three Tesla MRI scanner. So that was the nice thing. So even though it was a radiograph, even though it was a retrospective, there was a fair amount of standardization just based on the standardization of a single magnet and a, um, a sort of constant protocol that this clinic, this imaging center had. So how did you evaluate both the x-ray and MRI images and how did you grade the pathology that you found? So we were blinded to the, um, so we did the, we did all the radiographs separately. So we, we didn't know anything about the MRI findings and we, we, we graded the radiographs, um, and we assessed it for osseous changes at the suspensory ligament origin, including, um, sclerosis, the distribution of sclerosis, lucencies and the distribution of the lucencies, um, 
and whether we could see um, cortical proliferation. And then on um, MRI, we also, sorry, the cortical proliferation, I, excuse me, I meant that for the MRI. So that on the MRI, we looked at whether there was endosteal bone sclerosis, abnormal fluid signal in the bone, whether there was proliferation on the plantar cortex, and then we assessed the, MRI, the proximal suspensory ligament as well. And so those were done separately and blinded. So we had no correlation between those. And we also were not made aware of the blocking pattern. So whether a horse had blocked to its tarsus or its proximal suspensory ligament or anything like that. So it was completely blinded in terms of, um, of the horse's history and everything else to try to eliminate any bias. Okay, well, that, that nicely brings me on to my next question. Um, you did assess the lameness, and I think you did collect data about diagnostic analgesia. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you found a wide variety of lameness severity um, and how the horses responded to, to diagnostic analgesia. Was there any particular patterns that you picked up? Um, primarily, the horses were around a grade two lameness. There were a few that were higher than that. And then there was a smaller number that were a grade one out of five on the AP lameness scale. Um, and we didn't have diagnostic analgesia for every horse. We didn't have results for every horse. We had 24 of the 35 um, we did have. And that could be about, uh, about half of those had... Um, resolution to sort of proximal suspensory, whether that was the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve or a local infiltration. Um, and then a smaller number, have another half again of that were to the distal tarsal joints, and then some were just a combination of those. And then a couple of sort of smatterings of other blocking patterns, which in the previous um, paper that we published looking at the um, MRI findings of um, the tarsus and proximal metatarsus that was published in EVJ a while back, which some of these horse, some of these studies overlap, we found a similar distribution sort of in that um, blocking pattern. Now, I think it's important to remember that it is people are typically, at least in this population, much more commonly will block a proximal suspensory than they'll block the tarsus. So that is a little bit of a bias just to keep in mind in the, in that lameness evaluation that it's a little more common to block a suspensory ligament and then either go forward with, go forward with um, more imaging or sometimes it's more likely with the tarsus. A lot of times if that's a suspected area of lameness to just trial treat and not necessarily do diagnostic blocking. So there is a little bit, a little bit of bias in the, in how these blocking patterns shake out, I think. So once you've evaluated the um, radiographs, what type of changes were detected? So it's it's interesting and it's fun when you kind of do when you do a bunch of them in a row because you'll start to pick up you know patterns and things that maybe you don't really notice when you look at even just one a day, right? Like when you look at a whole bunch of cases in a row, you always pick up patterns. So a couple of things that we would see: one is sort of this really. Um, faint, ill-defined, sort of more lateralized increased bone density, which we ended up sort of working out as being really kind of a normal variant. And if you start paying attention, you'll see a lot of horses that just generally have a little bit more on the DP view of the radiograph, a little bit more bone density on the proximal lateral aspect of the metatarsus. And that really is just due to the shape of the metatarsus. And then the other things we would see is like, a, like right on midline, you'll see like a linear area of sclerosis. 
um, that when you compare that to an MRI, sometimes that's a little area of bone, like speculated bone production right on midline at the suspensory ligament origin. And then the other things we could see would be, so that would be sort of more like a linear or well-defined area of sclerosis. Sometimes we just sort of had a diffuse area of generalized increased bone density. Um, the other thing that we would get next to the, to the linear um, increased bone density or sclerosis would be loosened areas adjacent to that. And if you correlate that with what you see on an MRI, it's sort of an area of bone production on midline with an area of bone resorption on either side. And those would be the patterns in particular that we picked up. And then sometimes you'd also see sclerosis adjacent to one of the splint bones, so more like a medial or lateral linear sclerosis. Okay. And then what did you find were the most common MRI characteristics seen? So again, we saw a decent amount of um, endosteal sclerosis. Um, and so that was one of the more common things. And then bone proliferation, which often go together. So if you have endosteal sclerosis of the um, plantar corte, you know, plantar endosteal sclerosis of proximal MT3 at the suspensory ligament origin, that often will also, you'll see in conjunction cortical proliferation. So you'll see those little spikes of bone or, or little, it's usually sort of spiky bone. Sometimes it's more regular bone production, but on that plantar cortex of MT3. And those often go, those go hand in hand. And so the most common thing we saw was, was the cortical proliferation followed by the sclerosis. And that was most commonly fell into the category of mild. And when looking at the proximal suspensory ligament, is there anything in particular you found? Um, well, that, that really kind of fell in again with um, what we had seen in our previous study in terms of, you know, we would see enlargement, lo loss of fat and muscle bundle definition. Most of the changes we saw, the more common changes are on the dorsal aspect of the suspensory ligament, which is again um, what has been reported previously. And, um, and so the, those changes all sort of, they correlated nicely with previous findings. And, and we had um, a whole range. So there were about 17% of the limbs had mild proximal suspensory desmopathy, and 20% of them were considered severe proximal suspensory desmopathy. So when comparing the radiographic findings with your MRI findings, how did they compare? So it's interesting. What we were able to find was that there was a correlation between um, the radiographic changes and in and the bone changes, but we could not find a correlation between the radiographic changes and the presence of proximal suspensory desmopathy. So we can basically that take-home message is if you see bone change, then you can say that there is enthesopathy of the suspensory ligament, but you cannot say that there is desmopathy of the suspensory ligament, right? That those are two different groups. And one thing I really would like to emphasize um, in terms of that sclerosis is and just in terms of like that, what are the take-home message for evaluating this? And we have a figure in the paper. But like I said, we would sort of see this little bit of diffuse generalized increased density on the proximal lateral aspect of MT3. And these horses would have completely normal MRIs. 
And um, so we had like, let me just double check the number six, six limbs with false positive um, radiographic lesions. And that was, and then the, and the, because we miscalled sclerosis. So I think it's just very important to kind of look at the pattern of it. And if it's very sort of mild and diffuse, that can just be a normal contour to the bone or how you're catching the bone to get superimposition of even dorsal cortical thickening or, or just contour. Whereas when we have like really kind of well-defined linear increased bone density, you can feel a little more confident on that. And I'm not like completely following along with the paper. I'm just kind of taking, telling you what I got out of reading all these and then looking at our results and how it is now affected the way I look at radiographs. When I see really well-defined linear sclerosis, I feel much more confident on saying that's enthesopathy. Whereas if I just sort of see a hazy generalized increased density, knowing that we had these sort of false positives, I'm a little more careful on how I interpret that. Sorry, I digressed a little bit, but I just want to make sure that that point comes across. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so as you said, radiographic sclerosis correlated with the presence of sclerosis on MRI, mm-hmm. but not with proximal suspensory dysmitis. Right. Um, so there's a lot of discussion around radiographic changes that can indicate enthesopathy rather than proximal suspensory dysmitis. Well, how, how do you differentiate between the two pathologies, the enthesopathy and the proximal, proximal suspensory dysmitis? Oh, gotcha. Yes. Well, I think the take-home message is that radiographically, we can't do that. So then we, what we can say when we see these bone changes is that it warrants further investigation. And whether that is ultrasound, which is often the very reasonable next step, or MRI. But what we can say is we have bone change at the origin of the suspensory ligament. We cannot determine from that alone if there is suspensory ligament damage and we then we need another modality that's better for assessing the soft tissues. Okay, great. Uh, what were the main limitations that you encountered? Well, it's a re- it's a retrospective study, of course. So, um that means that it's there's already a sort of a selection bias, right? So if we had some horses that maybe had very abnormal radiographs, may have never made it to get an MRI or they had a really abnormal ultrasound, they may have never made it to get an MRI. And so probably we had a little bit more suspecting a little bit more subtle population in terms of the radiographic changes that made it into getting an MRI. Um, And then obviously, you know, we can say that these are the findings that correlate with primarily Western performance quarter horses. Like we have to be careful that we, that we keep it in the box in which it belongs. So we can say that we, this finding applies to this, but until we look at other breeds and disciplines, we can't necessarily extrapolate that. I mean, I think you can extrapolate some things in terms of what I just said, for example, about how it might change the way you read radiographs, but I don't think that you can say we can never predict suspensory desmopathy in any horse based on this one study. We just have to say at least in Quarter horses primarily used for Western um, sports, we can't. And then we need to take that information and see if we can apply it to other breeds and disciplines as well. So you were you were describing how this study has changed your um, clinical practice in respect to looking at radiographs. What was your mm-hmm. main take-home message for vets listening to this? I think the main take-home message is you need to be very careful about making the leap from 
bone change that you see radiographically to, to, to assuming that the horse has suspensory ligament desmopathy because we can't necessarily draw a straight line from A to B, right? They may not be, cor- they are, we didn't find correlation in this study. And so you have to remember that there may be no correlation in this patient you're looking at. And then the other, I guess, um, to me, take home is to not overread the radiographs and to recognize that there is a little bit of normal variation in the appearance of the bone density in the proximal metatarsis just normally and not to assume that that is necessarily pat like remodeling or sclerosis, abnormal sclerosis. Okay, well, Myra, thank you so much for yeah, finding time to go through this study with us today. It's really, really interesting. Well, thank you so much for um, including me. I really appreciate the the chance to be part of this. These podcasts are really cool. Um, a really great way to be able to digest things while walking or driving. And um, and thank you so much for your time. Well, yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Take care. Our second guest, Bonnie Barr, is an internal medicine specialist at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Kentucky. She'll discuss her recent paper titled Serum Amyloid A as an aid in diagnosing sepsis in equine neonates. Bonnie, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us about your recent paper in EVJ. Um, You've looked at Serum Amyloid A as an aid to diagnose sepsis in equine neonates. So can we start by um, you giving us a summary of neonatal sepsis? and the challenges clinicians face when diagnosing this condition. Yeah, um, well, thanks for inviting me to, to chat about this, um, this, this paper. Um, so neonatal sepsis, um, sepsis is it's a overwhelming um, and bacterial viral infection. It's actually the, the body's response to that overwhelming inf- infection. It, and it can be um, very life, life-threatening. Um, it can progress to shock and to death. Um, this is a challenge faced by um, people that manage um, equine neonates, um, and in addition, it's something that that um, human um, neonatologists also um, struggle with. It can be challenging to diagnose because some of the the clinical signs early on can be can be very vague. Um, it can be can it can be confused with other infectious or non-infectious problems. I guess one example would be is you know, like what we call the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or what we call the dummy foal, um, you know, the, that can be challenging for the clinician to try and realize, oh, is this, you know, is this a septic foal or is it a dummy foal? So that can, that's one of, one reasons why it can be so, so challenging, I think, just early on. The other thing is there's really no um, gold standard of, you know, diagnosis. It's not like you could just do um, one or two blood tests and you know, oh yes, this full septic. Um, it's where you have to kind of look at the, the patient and the history um, and, you know, and use your best judgment as to, you know, is this full um, challenge, you know, in septic. So that's, that's why it can be, you know, challenging for, for clinicians. Um, and then, then, you know, sepsis in general, it can be very, like I said, life-threatening. They can die very quickly. So, you know, the important thing is if you're suspicious that, that a, a patient is septic, especially a young patient, um, you know, to treat them um, properly um, quickly. Okay, so what is serum amyloid A? Um, why is it commonly measured 
and how does it reflect the inflammatory condition? Serum amyloid A, it's, it's an inflammatory protein. So it's what we call, it's an acute phase protein um, produced by the body uh, in response to inflammation and infection. Uh, and normally, this is, is normally found in the blood, but it's found either in very low levels or it's found or, or zero levels. So it's, it's not there. Um, and when there is inflammation or an infection, it peaks pretty rapidly. Um, we know that the higher the, the value of serum amyloid A, the more likely it is due to an infection and not just inflammation. So there have been previous studies looking at um, serum amyloid A levels. Um, what have studies found concerning levels in foals with systemic infections? Um, what those earlier studies found is that it, serum amyloid A was increased in a, a systemic infection. Um, and the, the, the reason why we did our study um, is, you know, we knew of the, about these papers from early on that, you know, serum amyloid A would be elevated in those foals with a systemic infection, a bacterial infection with sepsis. Um, but the, the reason to do our study is there is a, there's a newer stall side test that's been validated in horses. Um, all the other tests done previously were done with a, a benchtop assay. So meaning, you know, you had to send your sample somewhere or you had to take it to a lab and get the results. Whereas with this new stall side test, um, it makes it very easy. You can just carry the, the test, the little test kit around with you in your truck. Whenever you get your blood sample, you can just go ahead and run the test right there. You'll have your results within 10 minutes. So we wanted to take what we already know about serum amyloid A and systemic infection and kind of look at it utilizing this, this newer um, test. So what did your study aim to investigate and what did you hypothesize? Well, what we aimed to investigate was just to basically see if we could get similar results as to what they got in those earlier papers using this stall side test. So um, what we did is we, you know, we took a group of, of foals. We had a group of normal foals, healthy normal foals, and then we had a group of sick foals. We classified our sick foals more into those that were septic. Um, and then the, the, those that were what we call sick but non-septic. Um, the foals were all younger than 36 hours of age, and our, we based our categories on what we found on clinical examination, history, and, and blood work. So how many foals did you manage to recruit onto the study? Um, you gave us a little bit about the different groups you were looking at, but what were your inclusion criteria other than that? We, we were actually able to include almost 400 foals. Um, the number, I think, was like 397 foals, in, complete foals into the data set. Um, and how we based our categories is the normal foals, those were foals that had a normal clinical examination, their blood work was normal, you know, historically they had, it was a, a normal foaling, there was really nothing abnormal about that foal. The ones that were based as septic, we categorized those either based on a positive blood culture, and so we know that a positive blood culture is kind of, at, this, at least at this point, the gold standard for diagnosing sepsis, so blood culture, you know, you, you grow a bacteria, or 
a positive sepsis score or a positive modified sepsis score. And that is a, uh, a scoring system that we adapted from the human side in which it takes into consideration historical information, clinical examination findings, and lab results. Then you generate a number, um, and then the higher the score, the greater the, it is that they are likely septic. And the cutoff for that is if it's greater than 11, then studies have shown that there is a higher probability that the individual was, is septic. So that's how we categorize the septic foals. And then the sick but non-septic were all the other um, problems that the foals had. So um, a foal that had hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, a foal that maybe was a meconium impaction, a foal that had some musculoskeletal problems, those types of cases. And how did you investigate um, these different groups of foals? So what we did is um, we took basically... We only took one blood sample to look at the serum amyloid A value, um, and that was basically at admission um, to the hospital here. And then what we did is we compared at that point in time, we compared the, the median scores for the SAA based on all of those, um, or, or based on those three different categories. And what we found were that the ones that we had classified as septic they had a higher median SAA score when compared to the to the other groups. Okay, so that yeah, that leads me on to my next question. Um, what did you find with respect to the different groups or the different disease statuses of the foals? We found that if they were septic, the SAA like was was like I said was higher. It was median was about one hundred and forty four. The ones that were sick and non-septic, their SAA value was 1.5. That was about the median. And then the healthy foals, the median value was zero for those healthy foals. Now, granted, there were some ranges for these different groups, um, but... Overall, like I said, the, the median value, um, what, there was significance between the median values. So a, a significant difference between septic and non-septic groups. Um, what kind of conditions were the sick non-septic foals suffering from? And could any of those conditions also increase SAA? Um, yes, it's a very, actually a very good question. The sick non-septic foals were suffering from musculoskeletal problems, maybe a meconium impaction, aneuritis, um, maybe prematurity, um, or maybe a musculoskeletal abnormality. Some of those foals did have an increase in their SAA, and probably that was more due to inflammation. Remember, SAA, it's an inflammatory protein, so it is produced either in the face of inflammation or in the face of infection. And interestingly, what we found was very similar to several of the, the earlier studies, as they noted the similar thing. In their groups of foals that, were, what, that they classified similar to ours as maybe a sick non-septic, I don't know if they used that exact terminology, but they found in those foals that were not septic that they some of them did have an elevated SAA. And that was kind of attributed to the fact that, you know, 
that, that maybe there was just more just inflammation. Um, and I think, I don't know, maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but I do think it's important to remember, um, and this is one of the limitations, which, which, like I said, I'm probably jumping ahead of myself, but it is important to remember that not one value um, is with this test, one value, you need to repeat the test is what I'm saying. So if you have something that, you know, that, that is high and you're not, you know, it doesn't explain everything. It's a good idea to repeat the test in 12 to 24 hours. So for example, a couple of our foals that were sick and non-septic, they had high SAAs, higher SAAs. We repeated them 12 hours later and they had, they had come down. Now, granted, I did not include some of those data sets in the, the paper, um, hopefully that's for a paper at a later date, but you know, that is something that is very important when you're using this test is to look for more trends than just one solid number. Okay. That's really interesting to know. So septic is more likely to increase and then stay increased. Yes. Yes. Okay. And you looked into using different thresholds of SAA concentrations, which threshold did you find had the best ability to differentiate between septic and non-septic? We found that um, 100 micrograms per DL was the best cutoff um, when you know you know when looking at the 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 values, looking at the sensitivity specificity, you know, and all the statistical values. So 100 seems to be the the best cutoff. Okay. And was there a certain time after birth when it was more sensitive to analyze these concentrations? And if so, why does this occur? You know, really, honestly, um, I don't really know if there is, is a certain time that's better than others. Um, you know, these particular foals were all less than 36 hours of age. I think what is important for the practitioner is they can use it as part of their new foal exam. So, you know, most foals get a new foal exam between 12 and 24 hours of age, and that would be, you know, that would be the time to use it. Now, you know, you might have a foal that, that might look completely normal and like a, they may have an increased SAA. So maybe it's SAA is 125, but that would be a foal if it's clinically looking normal, doing everything that a normal foal should do, that would be one that I would probably just, you know, retest 12 hours later just to confirm that, you know, that it's not, that it's not going up. Um, and then, and to be able just to lay your hands on the foal again and make sure clinically the foal is doing well. Um, in my study, we did have a foal or two that came in that was, um, you know, 12 hours old and had, uh, a zero SAA, but granted the foal was recumbent, you know, you knew there were, pro- the, the foal was having some difficulties. Um, and so, you know, that was a foal that we also would, would repeat. I do know um, you have to be careful um, if the foal is getting some hyperimmunized plasma. You know, a lot of these foals might get plasma because they may have a low IgG. They also might get plasma, um, 
especially if they're like on a farm where rhodococcus is endemic, they might give hyperimmunized plasma for rhodococcus equi. And I do know that that can cause uh, an elevation in the SAA that is more attributed to the plasma, not to what's systemically going on in the individual. So the, those are, you know, there are a couple of times, a couple of things that you need to kind of keep in the back of your mind when you're measuring SAA. Okay, that's yeah another really interesting point. So would the um, plasma administration increase SAA above your threshold um, for a septic or is it generally below the threshold? It, and I didn't look specifically at that. I just know more from, kind of from my use of it. I would anticipate it's probably going to increase it over that 100 threshold. So that's where there could be some confusion. Okay, great. Um, what kind of limitations did you did you come across with this study? Well, I think I already alluded to one lim- a limitation in this particular study. As I think, as I know, SAA is is a is a great tool to to use multiple times. You know, just one SAA is good to have a baseline value, but follow-up SAAs, especially if you're treating something that's sick, is more is very important. So I think one limitation is the fact that we only did one, one value or we only included one value in this paper. Another limitation is, you know, it would be nice to look at SAA in conjunction, say, with a few other parameters. Like, do you look at it in conjunction with white blood cell count, with maybe temperature, maybe pulse, you know, something like that to see if maybe you, you know, you could get a little bit higher sensitivity and specificity, um, you know, by doing, looking at it in combination with, you know, some other, some other parameters or some other test values. And okay, so ha- have these changed? Um, have these findings changed your clinical practice or the way you practice? And what's your take-home message for our clinicians listening? Um, I mean, I, I think for me, it has you know just added one more. I like to call them piece of the puzzle when I'm looking at my looking at sick neonates, um, and, and it has also given me a very reliable um, test to be able to follow along in, in the patients. So I think an important thing and a kind of a take home message is for for practitioners is I think it's an important part to put in your new full full exam um, as part of included as part of your new full exam. Um, I think if it is abnormal, um, I think it's important to repeat it. I also think it's important to look at the value in in at the same time as looking at the full picture. Look at the look at the full. Look at the clinical signs. You know, look at your whatever you found on your physical exam findings. Um, and if there's some question, go ahead. You know, and repeat the test. Um, I also think you know it, it if if you're the if you know if you if you have a full that is not doing well and you do have an increased SAA that gives you that makes you more comfortable about going ahead and saying okay to the client we need to go ahead and either start treating this full or we need to go ahead and refer this full for treatment. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking us through your study. It's been really interesting to listen to and very clinically applicable. Um, so we really appreciate your time today. Well, you're welcome. Thanks again for listening and tune in in June for the next EVJ in Conversation podcast.
Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.